Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. There was a moment about 30 years ago that rocked history. It would affect millions of people in a specific place. But there was a subset of folks who, no matter where they were, got a hint of its impact. And they were baseball fans. For the first time in 27 years, a World Series game will be played in Candlestick Park. The Battle of the Bay continues. Game three of the 1989 World Series, the Oakland Athletics against the San Francisco Giants. I was 11 at the time, so like peak boy watching baseball, you know, and this was back when there weren't a million different things on TV. That's Lighty Klotz, who today is a professor at the University of Virginia with appointments in the schools of engineering, architecture, and business. But back then, as he said, he was just a kid tuning in to a baseball game. So looking forward to it. The World Series comes on, the announcers come on, and all of a sudden you hear like the screen goes blank. And what happened was the Bay Area earthquake happened that year, and the World Series was being played between Oakland Athletics and San Francisco Giants. It was the Bay Area World Series. Candy Maldonado with the hesitation, allowing Jose Canseco to score, and he fails to get Dave Parker at second base. So the Oakland A's take... take The 1989 earthquake ended up killing more than 60 people in the Bay Area and injuring thousands. 53,000 people had to be evacuated from Candlestick Park, where the World Series was taking place. We have a power failure, therefore the game will be postponed. We ask that you leave in an orderly fashion. Klotz has studied one particular decision that was made in San Francisco after the earthquake hit. And that's because of what the decision tells us about subtraction, which you might have thought that you learned about in elementary school. But he argues we don't understand subtraction nearly well enough. So one of the things that happened in the earthquake was that the Embarcadero Freeway, right on the waterfront in San Francisco, it had to be closed. A lot of the deaths in the earthquake actually happened on a double-decker concrete freeway in Oakland. And plus... This Embarcadero freeway had been damaged by the earthquake. So it wasn't just a matter of like, do we want to keep it? It was, do we want to actually like pay money to have this thing keep working and keep blocking our waterfront? There was already a movement to get rid of this structure, which was also double-decker, like the one that had collapsed in Oakland. And it stood on valuable land, obstructing priceless views. But the debate wasn't evenly matched. So on one side were most people. On the other side was primarily a woman named Sue Bierman, who was a high school valedictorian from Nebraska. She had moved out to San Francisco and gotten an appointment on the city's planning commission in the 1970s. She had carefully studied the positives and negatives of keeping this enormous concrete structure on the waterfront. And subtraction, she decided, was what was called for here. But Bierman couldn't get any traction. Even the damage to the highway after the earthquake didn't move public sentiment a whole lot. Herb Cain, who is a famous writer for the San Francisco Chronicle, said, once again, there's talk about tearing the down the Embarcadero Freeway. And he said, "There's it's an idea even worse than building it in the first place. But um, he expressed the sentiment of the people, which was like, what's the point of getting rid of this thing? Subtraction isn't easy. People rarely want to do it. 
Following the earthquake, the freeway did ultimately come down, though Klott says that decision also led a whole bunch of planning commissioners to lose their jobs. And it paved the way for the Embarcadero to become immensely popular. It's just this really nice, pleasant waterfront that you walk along and you can see the harbor seals. There's people blowing balloon animals for kids. Um, And it's just, you know, one of the most visited places in the world. Lighty Klotz is the author of Subtract, the Untapped Science of Less. And he says, first, it's hard to see subtraction. Second, once you do, almost no one is going to think it's a good idea. Klotz first started to really focus in on this issue when he was playing with Legos with his son, Ezra. My son was two at the time. He's six now. And I, uh, we were playing with his Legos. And the basic problem we had was that we're building a bridge and the bridge wasn't level. And so I turned around to grab a block to add to the shorter column. And by the time I had turned back around, he had removed a block from the longer column and had his level bridge. And so what he had done was subtract, right? He had subtracted a block to solve the problem. And I had, I'd always been interested in in less, but what was so helpful about that Lego bridge example was that it just like boiled it down to this thing that was right there in my living room, right in front of me. I could even take a replica of the bridge and put it in my bag and carry it around to show other people to say what I meant. And he did carry that Lego bridge around in his bag, and he asked people to fix it. So they could add a block to one side to even the bridge out, or they could subtract a block from the other side. Either way worked, except that no one subtracted. And then I took it to Gabe Adams, and she was she's a friend, and you know she was somebody, she's a behavioral scientist, and I've been trying to convince her to, I thought I had been trying to convince her to study this interest in, in less for a long time, and I gave the bridge to her, and she's brilliant, so I figured she'd get it. Plus, I thought I had been talking to her about subtracting, right? So I thought she was primed. And she added like everybody else. But then after she added, I I showed her what Ezra did. And she said, oh, oh, I get it. You're talking about why we overlook subtracting as a way to improve things. And I was like, yeah, Gabe, that's what I've been. I thought I'd been saying that all along. Um, But obviously I hadn't. Klotz and his colleagues then proceeded to spend years researching this phenomenon, which is a phenomenon that may be hardwired. Because if you subtract... How are people going to know how hardworking you are, how accomplished you are? Do you need to show them something impressive? Well, yeah, probably you do. And people have been thinking that way for a long time. And one thing that was astonishing to me was how central the role of monumental architecture was in Hmm. civilization. And like, I'm a civil engineer by training, and so... I love big structures, right? I, lo- I go look at the Colosseum in Rome. I go to the ruins when I'm on my honeymoon with my wife. But I didn't realize how central this was to the development of civilization. And the theory here is that by building big structures that don't actually have kind of a function in terms of shelter, for example, the Colosseum, the pyramids, even ancient temples, it forced people to come together, right? So by building the body of the civilization you kind of built the the collective mind of culture and this is something that's agreed upon by anthropologists historians that's like one of kind of five essential things that goes into making a civilization along with writing and an organized religion and some of these things that we kind of think of as as fundamental so understanding this okay the problem is 
displaying competence, right? We want to display competence and it's easier to do that by adding, but it doesn't mean we can't display competence by subtracting, right? So one of my favorite examples from the book and just in the world is, is Maya Lin's Vietnam Veterans Memorial. And this is mm-hmm. this just awe-inspiring monument. I, I just find it striking every time I go to the mall in Washington, DC. And in this arena of, of large objects, right? Maya Lin's created this cut into the earth that shows her competence by taking away. And I think the difference there with Maya Lin and with some of these other examples where people subtract so much and then other people recognize that as competence is that they continue to subtract. So if you subtract a lot, you can show competence because it becomes noticeable, right? So part of the reason the Vietnam Veterans Memorial is striking is because it's so different than everything else on the mall. And it's the same, I, you know, use Bruce Springsteen as an example in the book too, because he's one of my favorite musicians, but also because he did a very good job subtracting on one of his, you know, one of his breakthrough albums was Darkness on the Edge of Town. It's so stripped down, it's impossible not to notice that this is a different sound than what he's been using Mm -hmm. before. And so you can subtract to the point where it's, it's noticeable, but I think that, you know, we can display this competence by subtracting. It's not the problem that it's impossible to do so. It's just that I think you need to subtract even more to display competence. And I hope that encourages people to kind of persist to, to noticeable less is how I frame it in the book. So uh, just to go back to uh, Maya Lin and the uh, memorial for the Vietnam War, the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, um, when people... Uh, looked or heard about the idea of how this was going to be structured. Mm -hmm. Like this had been a competition. She won. And they heard how subtle it was going to be compared to many of these like huge, massive things that rise hundreds of feet into the air. That's not what she was proposing. There was resistance to it. Like people wanted it to be bigger and taller and the whole thing, right? Yeah. I mean, it basically wasn't monumental enough, right? And um, you can go to the memorial now and there's a huge flagpole and a statue off to the side that's kind of the the compromise. It's like, we got to have something, you know, jutting out of the earth here <laughs> to show how big we can make things. Um, so yeah, there was, there was resistance. It's kind of like the Embarcadero Freeway story, actually. It's, you know, kind of this thing that is pretty much universally critically acclaimed now. It wasn't so at the time. There was definitely kind of uh, some questioning of whether this was the appropriate way to honor the people who had lost their lives in the in the war. One of the things I really like about that memorial, and I think is also mm-hmm. very illustrative of, you know, it's not just subtract, right? It's add and subtract. I'm not saying mm-hmm. that adding is bad. It's just that we don't think of subtracting and sometimes subtracting allows us to do things that we can't do in other cases. And Lynn's design, it's, yeah, it's cut into the earth and it's a granite slab. It's understated, but it has the names of every single person who lost their lives in that conflict on it. And that's not the case with any of the other memorials. Um, so she did add too. And I think part of the reason that memorial is so moving is because you can see those names. And she also thought about... Um, Instead of etching the names alphabetically, she etched them chronologically. By doing that, she kind of presented information about the wars 
scope and you which know, there how was it, also resistance to people didn't want to etch them chronologically right yeah yeah so how are you going to find the people yes. so yeah it's a it's a great design i think it's a, a beautiful example of kind of like persisting to noticeable less and it's also a beautiful example of this notion of add and subtract these are complementary approaches to to making change Okay, let's pause here for just a second. On our website, we're gonna have more about Maya Lin and the contest that she won to design the Vietnam Veterans Memorial and the controversy over how she wanted to commemorate American lives that were lost in the conflict. That's at innovationhub.org. I'm Kara Miller, I'm speaking with Lady Kotz, who's a professor at the University of Virginia and the author of Subtract. From PRX and GPH Radio, this is Innovation Hub. Welcome back to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. Let's say you wanted to design an itinerary for a friend who was visiting Washington, D.C. And let's pretend it's before COVID times here so access is not an issue. To start off, I'm gonna give you a template itinerary, but you can change it around however you want. Okay, so a day in D.C. Here's what we've got on the list so far, and are there activities that you would add or that you would take away? We've got the White House, the Capitol Building, Washington National Cathedral, the U.S. National Arboretum, the Old Post Office, Ford's Theater, the Lincoln Memorial, the World War II and Vietnam Veterans Memorials, a visit to one museum, and some shopping and lunch at a fancy bistro. So that's your day. Did I leave anything out? So yeah, we give them we give them this crazy itinerary. And by this point in our experiments, we were trying to devise things where people would actually subtract. Lighty Klotz is a professor in the schools of engineering, architecture, and business at the University of Virginia. And he's the author of Subtract, the untapped science of less, which chronicles, in part, thousands of hours of experiments like this, in which people are free to add or subtract, but subtraction usually gets the cold shoulder. So our thought was like, like okay, this is so obviously packed that they will subtract. And um so we give them the itinerary and say, okay, how would you how would you make this better? And it was like a drag and drop on a computer screen where you could drag things off of your itinerary and give yourself a little more breathing room and then also drag additional things back onto the itinerary. Um, and people people still added to this like so in my mind, obviously overbooked day. Um, and they added and added and added and uh, kind of ruined their vacation in my mind anyway. <laughs> So why are people adding to an itinerary that would probably finish you off if you tried to actually do it in one day and enjoy yourself? The punchline from our experiments is just that the itinerary study, we had some, you know, versions of the Lego studies. And then we, you know, had experiments where it's random grids on a computer screen. And through it all, I mean, what we basically found is that people just think of adding first. It's the first thing that comes to mind when you're presented with a situation, whether it's a itinerary, whether it's a Lego structure, whether it's a piece of writing even. And your first instinct is to say, okay, what can I add to this thing to make it better? Klott says, certainly sometimes adding is called for. 
but there's another option on the menu that for some reason we often have trouble seeing. Whether it's when we're cooking or building something or scheduling our day, he points to the research of a scholar named Leslie Perlow, who in the early 1990s decided to understand what the lives of computer programmers were really like. Because these were folks, so the narrative went, who had packed schedules, they had long hours, they had no time. Well, as Perlow discovered, the narrative was a little bit more complicated. You know, she helped them identify what their tasks were. I mean, she some of the tasks were kind of obviously ridiculous. I mean, so they had some of the first iterations of fantasy football they were playing. And she's like, well, this can probably go, right? This is not like a mandatory work task. Um, and so she helped them prioritize those things. And then to kind of work around this, maybe a little bit of this notion of competence, right? Because when we subtract things, it's hard to show that we're doing things, she helped them add back in blocks of essentially like work time, uh, getting no other distractions and you're, you're able to just focus on your work. And so they added those back in after subtracting some of these other things that were were less valuable. And so, I mean, it's one of the things that I really like about the research and I really like about the idea is that it's so similar across time and social situations and ideas and also into the physical world. Um, you know, I think people might be thinking, well, isn't there a generation of gurus like, you know, <laughs> yeah. Jamie Oliver's like, you can make a recipe with just five ingredients or Marie Kondo's like, you can clean up your closet or Cal Newport's like, you can spend less time on email. And you say the reason those people are popular is because we are so bad at doing those things. We need those people. Yeah. And those people are awesome. I've read all those books and they've been helpful. <laughs> And, but they're not the first either. I mean, so it's like Leonardo da Vinci's definition of design perfection is when there's nothing left to take away. So that's pretty good hmm. design advice, right? Lao Tzu, um, you know, a quote that gets attributed to him is that to gain knowledge, add things every day, to gain wisdom, subtract things every day. That That's two and a hmm. half millennia old advice that still hmm. resonates. Um, so it's the fact that there are these gurus and that they are so effective and have such longevity is some of the best evidence, I think, of the fact that, you know, all else being equal, we're overlooking subtraction. Um, if you think about this in kind of a political context, hmm. I wonder if if you worry at all about people talk all the time about red tape. And I wonder if you worry that the solutions to problems we see is frequently to add something rather than subtract something. Yeah, certainly. And I, I think, uh, I mean, this is one where, again, it's add and subtract. I mean, I, I'm very thankful for the Clean Air Act, which makes it so that people can't smoke cigarettes in the restaurant that my son's eating in, right? Um, so it's not like all regulation is bad, but this idea that we don't even think about culling some of it and whether that might also be an improvement is certainly harmful. I, I think one of the... Um, just at a at a macro scale, the amount of federal regulations that we've gotten since the 1950s, it's basically gone up 17 times. Um, and there's a lot of improvement that can be made by taking away some of the things that are outdated. Um, Barack Obama, he put out an executive order that said he challenged the federal agencies to look at their regulations and see if they could do anything to make them more effective which, mm -hmm. you know, you can add or less burdensome. So 
is there a way to, to make this regulation create less of a burden either on the federal agency or on the, the people that are you know subject to the regulation? And one of the things that they found out, billions of dollars worth of savings that were totally non-controversial, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, it was obvious that this is not a necessary thing. And one of the examples was they were classifying milk as an oil for dairy farmers. And so dairy farmers trying to keep waterways clean, you know, keep runoff from going into waterways, certainly something that every dairy farmer I know would agree with. But for some reason, milk was in the same category as like fuel oils. So they were having to do this kind of expensive remediation anytime milk spilled or just to prevent the milk from spilling. And of course, milk is not nearly as damaging to waterways as, as oil is. And so when Obama challenged the the EPA to look at their regulations, this was one that they they were already kind of hip to the fact that this wasn't the the greatest thing, but Obama's executive order gave them the the push they needed to get over the hump and say, okay, yeah, let's let's get rid of this thing. And I think that example is illustrative of, you know, it's not just a matter of getting rid of regulations to get rid of regulations, but it also, I mean, that saves the EPA time to then focus on things that are bigger environmental issues or, or actual environmental issues in this case, in addition to to saving the farmer's money, which is something that gets passed back to, to all of us in the price of our food. And subtraction is kind of a political tool, too. I mean, like I think about something like divestment. Yeah. Right. Which has happened or um, you write a little bit about apartheid. And I mean, you can you can sort of push against a regime by I guess, dropping a bomb or you know, doing something actually, but you can also subtract, like say, I'm going to take my money and go do something else. And that has power too. Yeah. Divestment. I mean, that was kind of a big blow to the apartheid regime in South Africa. So, you know, for a long time, people had been resisting this regime. There were boycotts, there were people spending money to help the freedom fighters, which are which are all good things to do. Mm-hmm. But it took a while for people to realize, which again, this is like an example of how hard it can be to think of subtraction sometimes. It took a while for people to realize, well, let's just take out some of the money that's propping up this this regime that we don't agree with, right? And so like when the University of California system was one of the first to do this and they divested their endowment from South Africa and then a lot of dominoes started to fall and all of a sudden there's you're taking away the power of the thing that you're you're fighting against which can be even better than trying to kind of you know build up the forces that you're using to battle this system right and so you know it's just subtracting in this case made an incredible difference and was one reason that that system eventually fell and you see the same thing with climate action now um where you know we've been A lot of people have for a long time been sounding this alarm about climate change, and we certainly need to invest in renewable resources. We certainly need to lobby our, you know, political representatives to to do everything we can to, you know, address this, what I think is by far the biggest issue of our time. But at the same time, like, let's stop causing the issue, right? So can we can we divest from fossil fuel companies, right? Which is, you know, there's no doubt about the science that, you know, that's what causes CO2 emissions. And so as long as you've got that as a big part of your portfolio and you've got solar panels on your roof, you're doing two different things. Um, so 
so again, like divestment is a really powerful tool for addressing this problem. And it's a subtractive tool. And, you know, one of the cool things is Desmond Tutu, who is obviously really instrumental in uh, toppling apartheid in South Africa, is is really on this um, divestment to address climate change bandwagon. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's fun to see the that kind of momentum growing in the same way. And it gives me a lot of hope for, you know, one of the potential ways to address this global issue through subtraction. And of course, the nice thing about divestment, right, is once you've divested, you can take that money and invest it somewhere else. (laughs) So it's not like we're, it's not like you're losing money. You're just moving it around. So I wonder if we, if you think we're at uh, like an inflection point culturally, because um, you talk about uh, uh, Harry Truman's 1949 inaugural, and he has this mm-hmm. line um, that where he says, our aim should be to help the free peoples of the world. Through their own efforts to produce more food, more clothing, more materials for housing, and more mechanical power to lighten their burdens. You can see there, he's going for adding. Yeah. There's a lot of more. Um, is it possible that there was, and, and I mean, in the ensuing decades, a lot uh, smaller percentage of the world would starve every year. I mean, more in some ways did really work out. Mm-hmm. Um, are we at an inflection point? You talked about like climate change where it, where at one point in 1949, it felt like what we needed was just more of everything. and And maybe now it feels like, Maybe not as much. Yeah, it beautifully put, Kara, with inflection point. I, this is why the world needs writers and communicators. I wish I had written that in the book. Um, but what Truman was talking about was progress, right? And more was the way to make progress at the time, you know, by and large. Now we've got evidence that in a lot of cases, less is a way to make progress. And so, and still that we want to make progress, it's not that we want to, you know, kind of go back to the way things were in 1940, certainly. Um, But it's just that the situations that we're encountering have been added to already, right? And so we've got got more situations where subtracting is the way to make them better. So I do think that it's it's an inflection point in what our opportunities are, where, you know, we've got all this information, we've got all of this, you know, kind of built up infrastructure in cities. So now now it becomes an option to remove the highway that's going down the middle of the city. Now it becomes an option to remove the fantasy football from the middle middle of our day to make our workday more enjoyable and effective. And so the inflection point I think is is that there are more opportunities to subtract and hopefully we can I'm confident we can. I mean, I think we can we can take advantage of them. Lady Kotz is a professor at the University of Virginia. He is the author of Subtract, the Untapped Science of Less. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me, Kara. It was a lot of fun. We've got more from Lady about some of the subtraction experiments he did and the tests he gave folks, which you can peruse for yourself. That's at innovationhub.org. From GBH Radio and PRX, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Innovation Hub.